Bereavement Room is a podcast for our community, faith and culture, featuring representative voices from across the UK. And I am your host, Kolsima Ali. Hello, my name's Shireen Kerr and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm James Boston and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, I'm Bafo Ababio and you're listening to Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Jameel Amaraji, and you listen to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Akwa, and you're listening to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I'm Jalal Amir, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I'm Chelsea Coomson, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hello, my name is Laura Marvin, and you are listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hello, I'm Marvis Stewart, and you are listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi folks, welcome back to Bereavement Room Podcast. I am your host, Kolsima Ali. How are you all doing? What have you all been up to? Write to me on Instagram and Twitter. The handle is at Bereavement Room. I love hearing from you. So we've only got a couple of weeks left of this crazy, crazy year. How are you all spending it? I'm gonna share how I'll be spending the final few weeks of 2020. I'm cutting out the noise so that I can spend some time reflecting on the year that has passed us by. And mostly this is because my dad died at the end of January. So for me, I have still been working. Of course, I've been working from home, which has been amazing. And I'll touch on that on today's episode. Uh, But also it's just time that I could have to myself. And of course, I've been busy with the podcast. I carried on the podcast. And I will talk more about that in the final two episodes what it meant to carry on bereavement room even after my dad died so I will cover that off in the reflection episode before New Year's Eve and then the next episode will be very much about my father's life and the relationship that I had with my dad so before we get into today's episode and I announce today's guest if you would like to send in a submission of your thoughts and feelings of bereavement room what it meant for you and your own reflections on your loss and identity please do just dm me over on instagram or twitter and i'll respond uh send me a submission and if you want to stay anonymous we can do that because i would love to read out some of your letters in the final episode also uh there will be a season three of bereavement room in 2021 because you funded it thank you so so much And I would love to hear from more people that identify as Muslim because we're a little bit underrepresented in terms of how many Muslim guests we've had on the podcast. And I would like to speak to more of you. There are a few spaces left for Series 3, which starts uh, in the summer next year. So DM me. If you identify as Muslim, let me know. I would really love to have you on the podcast and find out more about your experiences of grief and loss. So today's episode is an episode about why we do what we do. We will be talking about grief and loss, but 
Today's guest is someone that I guess I admire from afar. Uh, she's an inspiration to so many women, uh, not just Muslim women, but women all over. And I really was keen to find out more about her because social media only tells you so much. And I really just wanted to have a chat with her. And lucky for me, uh, she accepted my invite. So I'm pleased to say that today's guest is Myra Khan. So Myra is a counsellor. She's BACP accredited. She's a therapeutic coach and qualified supervisor working in private practice under her organisations, Myra Calm Counselling and Grow to Glow. Now, Myra is also the founder of the Muslim Counselor Psychotherapist Network, MCAPN. MCAPN connects Muslim counsellors, therapists and psychologists via networking events and CPD opportunities. It raises visibility of Muslim practitioners via their counselling directory. As a role model, Muslim and East African Asian counsellor, supervisor and coach, Myra represents diversity within the profession and promotes counselling to minority and marginalised communities to help break the stigma of mental health and therapy. For all of her amazing work, Myra was awarded the Mental Health Hero Award in 2015. As always, thank you so much for listening. Hi everyone, welcome back to Bereavement Room Podcast. Today's guest is award-winning counsellor and all-round excellent woman, Myra Khan. Welcome, Myra. Thank you. It's lovely to be here with you today. Yeah, thank you for joining me. It's great to have your presence. So um, how's 2020 been treating you? Um, How has it been treating me? It's been treating me like the message that I'm getting from 2020 is very much along the lines of um, I'm going to make you the busiest you have ever been and there's going to be no let up and actually it's because the work you do is really needed. So yeah, I, I feel like 2020 has been my taskmaster this year, definitely. Amazing. Well, that's actually really, really good then for what has been an incredibly tough year. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and I just wonder, how, how did you experience lockdown? Um, was that easy or did you have any challenges with that? Um, a bit of both, really. I think some of the easy as- easier aspects, I should say, is that Actually, somebody who's naturally an introvert, um, I'm seeing all the memes and all all the gifs at the moment, you know, all the posts about, you know, introverts were made for lockdown. And I think, to be honest, I think in the first perhaps four to five months of lockdown, um, it actually didn't throw me that much. I, I, I was actually quite comfortable. I suppose the challenge more specifically for me then was just taking all of the work that I regularly do face to face and putting that online mm. and I was working online previously but but I, but I think the challenge for me this year was then going right do your entire portfolio online and yeah. also um we deliver teaching we, we teach diploma in counseling here at the center that I'm, I'm speaking to you from today it's where I'm based and I do all my work from um all my private practice and everything else that I do but specifically we deliver a two-year diploma here and actually, I think out of everything that we had to kind of transition with and, and be flexible around, it was taking that teaching and then delivering it online. 
So I think that was perhaps the biggest challenge um, because as we know, only kind of now in hindsight are people getting used to kind of Zoom fatigue and getting used to just sitting in front of a computer all day and talking to people online. But I think at the start of the lockdown, I don't think we really knew the extent to which that was going to impact on us. And so, yeah, I think the biggest challenge has just been kind of keeping up the energy and maintaining a pace in my work when, when everything now is being delivered online. Mm. Um, so, so, yeah, there's, there's been good, good aspects of it. There's been aspects that I appreciate I have found easier, but that, might, that clearly may not be true for other people. So I'm owning that for me, I think because of my character and personality, um, kind of spending a lot of time just on your own, actually I found that quite okay. But absolutely the challenge then was around how do we then merge working from home and then working from home online? Mm. And I'm sure a lot of people can, um, can, can relate to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. We have had a, a lot of our former guests reflect on their experiences of working from home. And I think it's interesting you say there with students that are studying where they've had to, particularly in counselling and psychotherapy, where they've had to move from face to face to Zoom, because absolutely you do sometimes experience a bit of fatigue when you've done too much of it. Um, yes. And particularly if that also has to reflect in your personal life where you don't live with family or friends or you can't see your family and friends because of a global pandemic. Um, so, yeah, I've, I'd say from everyone that I've spoken to, it has been a bit of a, a mixed bag, um, as, as you've sort of described there. I, yes. think, I think for me... I was happy because I'm also a bit introverted mm. and I, my dad died earlier this year so after the funeral when we got sent home I was very happy for that I was probably the first person to exit the office as quickly mm. as I could because for me it just came at a really good time <laughs> as, mm. as weird as that sounds no, and you know, first of all, kind of my my sympathies and condolences with your loss. I mean, that's a big, you know, that's a big person. You know, a major role in our lives. But when we lose that person, but I can actually really relate and understand that lockdown actually perhaps has offered us some advantages that previously we may not have understood or identified, but it feels as if that for you then the timing of lockdown enabled you perhaps then to um track you know um navigate your way through that grief process and navigate your way through perhaps you some of the more practical aspects in in, in a perhaps an easier or better way that suited you oh yeah absolutely um it just meant that because i hate grieving in the office and i've had experience mm. of that before so yeah. i was i was just like oh my god this this has come at such a great time i can't wait to get away yes and i love working from home anyway and it, it was very practical as you say and just worked out well but then of course i have heard people that are grieving in a lockdown that you know maybe their boundaries are being violated a little bit and mm. it's quite hard being stuck at home with the same people all the time at the same time uh, uh, yeah definitely and I think again this goes back to lockdown is not a one-size-fits-all unfortunately and what I appreciate these slogans that say you know we're in it together 
we might be in it together, but we're in it together in very different boats, if I can put it like that. Mm. And people's individual circumstances are very different. And so, as, as you're saying that for you, perhaps it suited you, not just only for your character being introverted, but also what you were going through, you know, navigating and processing your grief and that space, mm. you, know, you know, supported that process. Absolutely. On the flip side, then, for some people, lockdown meant that actually they weren't able to um, be in an environment that supported whatever they were trying to navigate at the time. As, as you say, people felt on top of each other, if people felt they didn't have privacy, that there were no boundaries, that they had no space for themselves. Mm. That's incredibly difficult then when you are being told to stay at home with your family, do not socialise with anybody else, don't leave the home, you know, your home unless you're, um, you know, essential work or, you know, you're one, one hour a day of exercise. So it's about recognising and holding on to the fact that I think for every single one of us, this lockdown has been a unique experience to each of us for all of the reasons we've mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. So if there is anyone listening, I hope, you know, that reflection is quite comforting and to know that you're not alone, particularly in this, in this second lockdown that we're in, <laughs> that we find yes. ourselves in. <laughs> yes, and, and, and also going back to that as well, I'm smiling as you say the second lockdown. The reason I'm smi smiling is because some of us, and I'm talking specifically about people from Leicester, and that's where I'm based, we haven't really come out of the first one, to be honest. And so, <laughs> so for a lot of, of people, um, for a lot of people going, oh, no, we're going back in second lockdown, I feel actually, for, for many of us, we, we've been in lockdown since March, and things have not changed that much since that first lockdown. Yes, I appreciate more shops might have opened. Um, and, and, and I think this, again, is about honouring and valuing and, and just identifying and recognizing that again lockdown has it has been experienced by many of us in different ways so when that first national lockdown finished back in the summer within 10 days Leicester was back in back in a local lockdown and we haven't come out of it since so um so I, I suppose I suppose that's also you know going back to your very first question about how 2020 has treated you that's perhaps also why I see the year as one long block of a lockdown oh because <laughs> how I've been working since March has just continued all the way through. Mm. I suppose the one let up for me, which I'm extremely grateful for is um, when businesses were allowed to reopen back in September, the center reopened for face-to-face -face teaching mm. and I'm back in the office then. I'm physically back in back in my office here in the centre, even though I continue to do all my work online. But just that change in environment makes a huge difference. So, so you know, again, there are definitely still things to be grateful for. Oh, absolutely. And thanks for bringing that into my awareness because I live in London and I kind mm -hmm. of forget that actually lockdown is very different as well, depending on what city you're living in, because yes. because the rules will be different. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, one big block indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, abs absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but, 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 you know, again, it offers us the, um, the opportunity, I suppose, mm. to then think about what, what was our old normal and, and, and is that the normal we want to go back to? And how, you know, is it, I think this time, actually, this year, I think, has given a lot of people time to reflect on mm. how do they want to be living their life moving forward, you know, post-lockdown and whatever the new normal and in inverted commas is here. Um, I, I think it's a really good opportunity to be intentional 
about how do we want to be doing things moving forward oh yeah absolutely there's so much power and reflection and and kind of what life will look like next year mm. perhaps and what we value which yes. kind kind of brings me to ask you then because you said you're from Leicester a little bit of background into yeah what city you're from kind of your upbringing but also you know how you um went into the world of therapy yeah so yes so I, I was born and raised in Leicester so I I'm very much in my hometown and it very much does feel like home. I did spend some time down in London. I, I've worked and I've studied down in London. I did my, my undergrad degree in London. And then I went back there in the, um, in around 2005, I went back and worked there for a couple of years. I also spent um, a year up in Manchester when I did my master's and that, this was back in 2000, 2001. But that was all before I even contemplated becoming a counsellor um so yeah so, so my upbringing has been here in Leicester and interestingly at the time I didn't realize how much that would have an influence on me or shape me and make me make me aware of the kind of issues I now talk about as a counsellor especially things to do with difference and diversity, inclusivity, intersectionality and representation. And that's because I grew up in a city which some, some, of, some of you may know, some of the listeners may be aware that Leicester's the first city to become a minority majority. Mm. So 51% of the population of Leicester um, can come under the umbrella term of, of, of belonging to a ethnic minority community or ethnicity and it for me it, it's not just the number that's important but actually for me looking back it was about that lived experience of growing up in a city in which and I, and I often talk about this which is you can walk through the center of town and no single ethnic identity is seen as a minority or a majority. Wow, interesting. But, yeah, and at the time, I didn't realise how much that had just kind of seeped into me in terms of my everyday experience. And it wasn't until I started travelling around the UK, whether that be for study or work, did I notice the difference. Um, because I was so used to being in a town, in a city, in which there was no huge differences there's no like stark difference between a, a majority community or ethnicity and then being a minority and so you could have all walks of lives walking through the city center here and no one bats an eyelid wow. so, so and, and, and that for me was then again um integrating and absorbing this culture of acceptance and and, and being kind of our authentic selves and just being ourselves and, and being accepted and not being stared at and not being treated differently because you're a minority. And it's interesting actually, because I think that's really important in terms of my lived experience, because as I said, going full circle with that now as a therapist, I do a lot of work and a lot of training and I deliver a lot of workshops then on working within diversity and understanding intersectionality and being able to help practitioners and therapists and counsellors as well as people in other professions 
to think about how much our lived experience and relationship with the world and with society has such a direct impact on our sense of self and whether we feel we belong or not or whether we feel um, where, are we being, where are we being socially located in the world. So it's interesting that my lived experiences led me then to actually teach that as wow. part of the training that I do. And would you say that was the core reason that led you to train as a counsellor? Interestingly, no, it wasn't. It, uh, when I look back, I sometimes, I, I sometimes do feel like I kind of fell into this profession. And I, I, and I say that not because necessarily one day I thought, right, I'm going to be a counsellor. I, I honestly don't remember when I, ch when I kind of decided to become a counsellor as such. There wasn't some kind of, you know, light bulb moment. But looking back, though, but, um, I, I suppose I'm thinking that there wasn't a light bulb moment because it was inevitable. There was something around it that felt so natural and it felt just so organic in how it unfolded for me. Mm. But I didn't that there was never this moment where I was kind of journeying in a different direction in life and then made a career decision to change as such. But what happened was after studying and, and working actually in London and I moved back to Leicester, this, this was back in 2007, I was working as a researcher at, at one of the universities here. And at the time I thought, for somebody who is um, a... Um, a lifelong learner, student, I love learning. I thought, I know what, let me just do like perhaps an evening course um, whilst I'm working full time as a researcher at the university. Mm. And I came across what many people will recognise um, who have gone on to become counsellors as, you know, that first foray into the world of being a counsellor, which is you go and sign up for an introduction to counselling skills course. Mm. And, um, and I did that. And I thought, this is interesting. I enjoy it. Um, it helps me to um, build better relationships. It gives me skills to, for, for me to relate better to other people, but also the aim of being able to sit and really listen to somebody. And it just evolved from that. A 10-week, you know, one-term, 10-week introduction to counselling skills course led me then to go, oh, there's an opportunity to do a two-year certificate in, in counselling. And I thought, right, I'll do that. You know, I, I, was, I was working at the time and I thought, it's, it's, it, again, it's something to keep my mind active and busy and learning, um, continuing that learning journey for me. Similar mm -hmm. thing happened. I did a two-year certificate. And at the end of the two years, the next level then was the diploma in counselling. And that's at the point where that diploma is your actual qualification as a counsellor. So with the, the two-year certificate I did before, that was more like a prerequisite. That was counselling skills. Mm. But this two-year diploma came up, and again, an opportunity to study it. And I thought, and I remember there was a moment in the summer holidays, essentially, the summer between me qualifying with the certificate before the diploma was going to start. And I remember very clearly thinking to myself, I'm going to do this diploma because... I want to know what it's like to sit in a room with a real client because mm -hmm. up until then you're just doing lots of role plays and lots of oh, yeah. practicing of skills with, with oh, other yeah. students yes in, in the class and at that point you've never sat in front of somebody real you've not sat with a real client and I remember thinking to myself actually no I, I just want to know what it's like what is it to sit with a real client and to help and support them 
Mm. And so, again, I remember my thought process at the time was literally, I just want to know what it's like to sit with a real client. Again, with no idea of going into this as a profession, no idea that I would, I would end up doing all the work that I do now in this field and having a more than full-time portfolio of work. Mm. I, I remember at the beginning of that diploma, I, I, I was very lucky to have got my counselling placement at the, um, at the university student counselling service. And again, at the, time, at the time then, I remember saying to myself, I really want to work with students. Being at a university was my kind of comfort zone because at the time I was a researcher at the university and mm. being, you know, being on campus and being around higher education was kind of my, my comfort zone. It was my default. I felt very familiar with, with um, the issues that I was going to be working with with students. And, and I thought, if I do this two-year diploma, I'll get my client hours and I'll qualify. And if I'm lucky enough, I remember thinking that, if I'm lucky enough, I may be able to get a one-day-a-week job or a part-time post, a paid part-time post working and supporting students at the university. Starting with that very first client at that student counselling service, that was now 11 years ago. And to look back and think that, gosh, I started off thinking I might be able to get myself a one day a week paid role, has now, and in the last 11 years, has gone from, of course, qualifying and doing my diploma, but within a year, 18 months of um, qualifying, I, st I started to build my private practice. And I have been full-time self-employed as a private practitioner now since 2014. It wasn't that there was a moment where I thought, I want to be a counsellor, let me go and do training. But as I said, it's just naturally unfolded over the years. And it really has felt that that, 20, that, that year 2014, was that, that was a pivotal year for me because I went and into full-time private practice as a counsellor. And that, that was the same year I also started teaching counselling as well. So the two have been part of my portfolio ever since then. And, and it's just, as I said, it's just grown from there. It sounds very much like a very organic journey for you. Um, wonderful to hear. Congratulations since 2014. Thank um, you. That's a while now. Yes. And I kind of noticed as you were kind of taking me through your journey, um, that there is a difference between actually sitting with a client versus doing triads, fish bowls, and role plays. Yes. Uh, is that something that you struggled with during your training? Any kind of thoughts? Um, I, I wouldn't say so much that, that, I, that I struggled with it. I think very often what we do when we're, when we're training prior to working with real clients is that I think we get to a point in which we go, oh, these role plays aren't real and you're not really practicing mm. the skills properly. And mm. you get to a point where actually I think you're ready to work with real clients because you want to actually feel and experience what's it like to do this with a real client. Um, but looking back though, and also I'm bearing in mind that as a teacher and a tutor, counselling counseling tutor, those role plays are invaluable. You know, we can't do without them. There's a reason why um, we do role plays and practice those fishbowls all the way up until we start working with real clients because it's the only time, the only opportunity where we get to practice the skills and kind of integrate them into ourselves. Um, so whilst, yeah, you get to a saturation point with, with role plays, but 
I, I also kind of sit here and I'm, and I'm kind of recognizing the real value in them as well. Mm. It's interesting because I remember when I was in a fishbowl with someone, one of my classmates, she kind of stopped halfway and said, this is so contrived, I can't carry on. Mm. And for her, it was too much acting and not enough authenticity. Yes. And we both just, I think we both equally despised fishbowls, if I'm honest. Yes. Uh, um, and I, I think it does, I don't know if it's just practice or what, or just, you know, get the nerves of, forget that the rest of the room is staring at you and observing <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's a combination of all of those things. But, but in, interestingly, I, I, I always find it fascinating when students do respond with, oh, well, this isn't real and I'm not doing it properly. Because what we actually say to our students here is, no matter how much, as the, as, the, as the person pretending, you know, the person playing the role of the client in these fishbowls or in these triads, in these role play practices, no matter how much we we might give you a client scenario or a client situation to play. You've got to remember that we're all, as the client, we're always drawing upon, consciously or unconsciously, we're drawing upon our own lived experience. So mm. there is actually, actually an element of realism in those role plays. And when we explore that then with our students, it feels as if there is a shift then in which they're able then to respect whatever the client is then bringing. Um, and it allows a counsellor then to go, do you know what, this may be a role play practice, yes, I, I might be being observed by my tutor and other students, but I have to honour and respect what this client is bringing me right here, right now, because some of it's going to be real. Mm. It might be elaborated on, it might be, you know, we might have a lot of kind of artistic licence around it, but there will be some truth in that, because where, where else are we drawing upon when we're, when we're in these role plays? Mm. Yes, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I guess classmates were very white and middle class. And mm -hmm. I guess I always felt that a lot of the problems they were bringing into fishbowl or triad were middle class problems that quite yes. frankly, this can sound very judgmental, that I couldn't give a monkeys about. So maybe it was hard for me to hold, it was my awareness that it was hard for me to hold space for people that yes. were bringing trivial issues um into this encounter and i just knew that i wouldn't serve them well yes but, but again this leads back to perhaps what we started touching on earlier around working within diversity and recognizing people's different lived experiences because i think there is something fundamental in counseling which is we as counselors we sit and we listen and we hold and contain the lived, the lived experience and the truth of our client right in front of us and whatever they bring it's held with that with that weight in in, in that respect because absolutely relatively and in, in comparison to perhaps what other people might be going through relatively it can be seen as you know as not as distressing as or not as important as or not as serious as but as counsellors our role actually is, is 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 not to then compare and to go whatever this client is bringing me right now it's important to them therefore it's important for me to honor and respect and value and, and as i'm saying that 
I appreciate that, yes, we're going to, you said, oh, but some of, the, some of these problems that, that my classmates might have been bringing were trivial and so I couldn't relate or perhaps empathise with them. I, 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 for me, there's something in, it's re, there's something in that there for me then, which is about, well, I wonder how that then is supported in the learning and the teaching and the training, not specifically that you got, but more generally. And again, that's why I'm really keen um, to deliver training in working within diversity because when we then position the client in a way that's about what's their truth and how can I honor it I think it allows many of us almost it almost puts us in a position of almost like a freedom to give up a sense of comparison or relativity it's about my role to honor and, and, and respect what my client is bringing, even if, um, as you said, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that important. It might, it might, it won't be important to anyone else, or might not be seen as as as, as, as important to somebody else. But to the client, it is. And to me, then, it's not that I'm challenging you. It's more that I would then be challenging the teaching that goes around that whenever that comes up in a training course, because. Um, my experience of being a tutor is that you're not the first one to say that. Um, so for me, then, it's about how do we then create a space for us to talk through this experience. And I said very often by by, um, by counsellors or trainees who are then yet to work with real clients so that we can honour what's being brought up in these role plays. But to me, that's, you know, going down the avenue of um, teaching and training as opposed to your direct experience of being the trainee. Oh yeah, um, there, there probably is very much an element of that. Um, I definitely can resonate with what you're saying there. I think it took me a while to, because I think I was working with a lot of privileged people, I guess you could mm. say, if we're going to use that label. Yes. And they, it took me a while to get to a point of, well, this is their world, that's not my world, and this is their pain in their world. So if someone is coming to me with the fact that they can't, cope with the fact that they have to for example navigate a million pound estate after the death of someone my personal values i just be like whatever you're going to end up with a million pound estate but then i had to come to the reasoning of this is the pain of what they have to navigate in their world this is nothing to do with you but this is their experience and i think mm -hmm. it took me a while to kind of get to feeling some kind of empathy for people that are in a, that live a different life to me, I suppose, yeah. a, a very different experience to me. Mm. Um, but I'm, I'm just going to park that for a second because mm. I want to come back to what you said earlier about um, Leicester and, and minorities. Um, mm. So are there any white people in Leicester? I've never been to Leicester, so I don't know. <laughs> yes, yes, there definitely are, yes. Um, it, 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 it's just a very mixed city. Yes, there are certain areas and suburbs of Leicester in which you have perhaps a dominance of a particular ethnicity. Um, or, you know, that there'll be areas that, that, that are kind of dominantly white or Asian um, or black. Um, and, and, and even then, not even in racial terms, you know, you will, will have like um, a very large Somalian community in a particular area of Leicester. Mm. You'll have a very large um, Hindu community in another area of Leicester, a Muslim community in another. So while some of the suburbs may reflect 
uh, um, you know, a, a dominant um, or a majority of a particular ethnicity. There is something though that once you come into the city centre itself, though, and you walk through town, there is no reflection of which one is dominant over the other. It's mm. it's it's very mixed, and that's what I love about my my, my home city. Mm. It sounds very integrated. Um, well, yeah, I, I think the city itself though, has worked incredibly hard though to integrate, and interestingly what, what's just come to my mind is that um as we know because of lockdown in this year obviously there are talks around are we going to ease lockdown for christmas and um but hold on a minute for Eid and diwali and for other religious festivals they haven't they haven't done that and what i was reminded of just then talking about leicester is i think one intentional way that leicester has brought together their diverse communities is that in the city centre, you see every different major festival celebrated. Mm. So they will put up lights for Eid, they will put up lights for Diwali, they will put up the Christmas lights. So there is something about, there is an, an again, going back to honour and respect and valuing of the communities that are here. And I think that's the thing that I absolutely love about this place, which is um, there is a acknowledgement and a reflection of the different faiths and ethnicities that live of the different communities then that live here mm. and that could play a big part in one's experience no matter what background um you're from which mm. is can only be a good thing so i guess i'm gonna push the boundaries a little bit um i'm just curious to know have you ever seeing as you've lived in london but have also now gone back to leicester and you've experienced two major cities, one being your home city and one being London where you studied and worked. Uh, have you ever felt like a minority? An interesting question. It, it, it takes me a moment to think about that. I have. And I wouldn't even say that it's like yes in London or no in London and yes or no in Leicester. I think it's about situations mm. and it's all about how people then relate to me mm. or, how I'm, how, or how I'm being related to mm -hmm. based on both my visible identity as well as my internal sense of identity as well. And what I mean by that is, is that visibly upon meeting me, people will know straight away that I'm Muslim because I wear the hijab mm. and that I am from, I, I, I am brown and I am from some type of um, Asian background, even if people won't know specifically, but racially I'll be categorised as brown. And so what I find is yeah. people then will potentially relate to me based on those external um, signals or cues and what they then project onto those signals based on their based on their projections, based on what they think I am, based on the fact that I wear, wear a headscarf, that perhaps I, I don't speak English or I don't speak English very well or that I'm not educated or that I live a very, you know, um, closed off, secluded life um, or, that, or that perhaps I don't have the interests that I do. Mm -hmm. um, so. so I think it's very much situational. It's about how are we being related to um, 
Mm. And, and again, that's contextual about where, where I am. You know, if I turn up at a counselling conference, for example, um, you know, I'm going to be treated in a very particular way because I'm in a professional gathering. Mm. Um, and then it becomes about um, the jockeying of position in terms of hierarchy and status as a professional, which, again, what gets projected onto me then is um, a sense of not being as experienced as I am because then a visual cues and what, again what gets associated with being a Muslim woman mm. um, and, and somebody who is not white that's going to be a very different experience to them to them perhaps how I might be treated if I walk into a shop for example um, so, so, so I think it's very much about the situation I'm in but I definitely can recognize where at times I have felt dismissed or discounted or minimized mm because people have assumed and projected onto me their view of me their 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 Stereotype. understanding of my absolutely yes as opposed to actually getting to know me so very often i will be um i think within the professional sphere and i and i think it's something that, that, that i i know i have definitely felt and i'm sure many other um people who come from minoritized, ethnic minoritized communities will, will, will be able to relate to this, which is we have the sense of having to work 10 or 20 times harder. Oh yeah. Uh, and so I definitely have felt that in, in my profession. Um, because as I said, when you start meeting people in the profession and when you get, get, when you get out into the world a bit more and into the wider counseling communities and, and profession and the more practitioners you meet, there is a sense of you are questioned for what are your qualifications how long have you been working and you know they try and ascertain from you where where can they pitch me on a hierarchy where can they 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 hook me onto a framework that means then they can determine how much value or skills or experience they have and i know that i have had to work 20 times harder to get where i am um and to be offered certain opportunities because I've had to overachieve um, or really demonstrate my skills and experience just so that I'll be given the exact same chance as somebody who perhaps has the dominant identity. Mm. Myra, thank you very much for sharing that. That is something that I think a lot of our listeners will resonate, that experience they'll resonate with or relate to in one way or another. Um, I certainly have. Um, and it, that can often be a painful experience that you have to go to just to achieve or prove yourself mm. which kind of takes me now to your TEDx um your TEDx appearance yes. I, I I watched it online uh I think a couple of months ago and I recall that you mentioned that before you became a counsellor you worked in a variety of environments you had lots of different jobs from retail to corporate so kind of now looking back on your experience do you say that worked out in the way that it should have that you needed to experience all those other experiences of working in different environments to get to where you are now like what are your what yeah. are your reflections on that yeah it, it, the short answer is yes absolutely I'm really pleased for all those other experiences a slightly longer answer would be it's because it gave me life experience and actually as a counsellor mm. we want to be able to sit with our clients and empathize with with real life and mm. real lived experiences mm. and it, it kind of in a way links me back to, again, as, as, a, as a counselling tutor, 
what we look for in potential trainees mm. is that they've gone and had a bit of life experience that they've gone out into the world and know something about the world so that when again so when they're sat in front of clients they are not how can I put it not so shielded and they're not so innocent or naive um, and then and therefore not so easily shocked perhaps by the by the vast diversity of clients stories and experiences and narratives so for that reason, I'm absolutely pleased with all the different types of jobs I've done before. Mm. You know, from that sense of life and lived experience. But also, it's because the number of times I've sat with clients and they have spoken about a lived experience or working in a particular profession or, or doing a particular job, and I sit there and go, oh, I, I, can, I can really understand and relate and I can really quite easily empathise because I've had a job that's been similar. Or if they talk about a particular process or a particular working environment, I'll go, yeah, I've had a similar experience. It doesn't feel so, um, so much of a blank screen for me. It doesn't feel like this is unknown territory for me. So having worked in retail, in academia as a researcher, I worked in London, I worked in the media, so I've worked in film and TV. Okay. Um, so, so all these different experiences have allowed me to not only do my job better as a counsellor, but all the skills I acquired along the way, actually, I, now, I now still use them in actually to um, build my businesses, to actually deliver content, to manage my social media, to be comfortable doing things such as podcasts like right now and being you know, in front of camera perhaps or doing radio shows because I have that media background. Mm. So, so for me, it's not only from a level of lived experience, also for me, they have completely enabled me and empowered me to bring into this new and into my current you know, portfolio of work, all those skill sets that I learned along the way. Mm. So you've had a lot of exposure and you've got a lot of empowerment from those and experiences that you've had along the way that have helped you now in terms of how you shape your work. Um, which again I can definitely resonate to uh, but a thought just popped into my head and I'm sorry to turn it around back to something that no, I experienced um, when I was on my foundation year we had to do this one minute exercise where you're sitting in front of the other person in silence not saying anything mm -hmm. and they're just staring at you and I think mm -hmm. it's like an assumption exercise the assumptions that you can make about people um, and the feedback I got was that I looked, I think I, you already know about this because I may have tweeted it, that mm. the feedback was you haven't had any life experience because you look, because I'm young, I have a young face, according mm. to, to that person. And so therefore, I don't think that you could be my counsellor because you just look too young. And mm. I would want someone that looks older. And when I had to give her feedback, equally, I think she was shocked about the feedback that I gave. And I was like, I'm not sure that I can have a counsellor that's like from the rural countryside, from mm. Tring or whatever, uh, very middle class. Like, I don't think you understand my Muslim experience or like my cultural background. Um, but she was like, oh, but it's about connection. It's about chemistry. And I said, for me, it doesn't just come down to an, an, a likeness. Uh, yes. and you know being nice to each other and liking somebody as a person it's um a bit more than that but do you find that you've had any experiences like that which I know that you've mentioned earlier that 
you have in terms of people make, I don't know, assumptions and stereotypes yeah. about what mm. you like and what your interests are. Um, yeah. What would you say to something like that? It's really, it's a couple of things really. One is, I definitely get the age thing, which is, uh, again, it's, it's another microaggression that we get dismissed for our so-called lived experience, or not even that, our practitioner professional experience, because we supposedly we look young and therefore, what can I possibly know? Um, and, and I get that from other practitioners. I get that when I go and deliver training, in-house training courses or workshops to other counselling services. Um, there is absolutely projection onto me of, um, well, first of all, there's a judgment of, 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 of them assuming how old I am. And then the projection of, well, if I'm that old, therefore, dot, 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 um, you know, she can't be that experienced. She might, she doesn't know what she's talking about. So it's interesting that we do get judged and it's human nature to judge so that it isn't even that we have to get to a place of non-judgment but rather we have to again acknowledge the judgments and the prejudices and the biases that we hold mm. because that then allows us to be conscious and mindful of how are those then being acted out in the relationship um if i'm dismissing somebody and i'm not giving their opinion much weight I've got to check myself and go, well, why is that? What's going on in this process that means that I don't give that person's opinion much weight, but I would do that for somebody else? And it's and, and kind of going back to your experience then of going, you know, in, in, in that silence exercise and and that idea of the other counsellor going, well, you're too young, you don't have enough life experience, you can't possibly be my counsellor. Clearly paraphrasing that that experience right there. Um but, but, but even in that alone, that's what clients are going to be doing towards us in sessions, mm. particularly in the assessment or when, or when we first meet them. Mm. For me, that is both part of the work, if you end up working with them, because that's part of understanding their projections and how they relate to people. But it also acts as a filter for you then going, well, I'm not a good match for you. So there is something about if a client has that experience with you, it's okay in and of itself, but it's what you do with it. I think that's the important thing. Mm. If they say to, if they choose to say, right, well, I don't want to work with you, then that's fine. That's the client's autonomy. But if they choose to continue working with you, at that point, I'll go, well, clearly then it's something that we need to talk about. Maybe not right there and then, but it's part of the process, part of the counselling. We need to address it. That's a really good point. I mean, I've definitely turned away counsellors probably based on my initial encounter um, or projection that I've put on them for sure. Um, but I think within the training sphere, there is definitely a lot of microaggressions and certain incidents that take place that probably, well, I don't know if it's a good or bad thing that probably shouldn't happen or if they do it is quite painful for that other person I think experiencing yes. it when the other person can't see their own racism I guess yeah um so there are different factors to take into account there uh, I suppose mm. um I could talk about training and cancelling all day um <laughs> but uh let's move the conversation on so I noted that you are a um certified facilitator 
And something that I've always been interested in is group dynamics and how group dynamics play out. And um, I think that the first time in a long time that I saw good facilitation skills was probably in my foundation year when I was studying. Um, there was definitely some good facilitation skills there. Uh, I just, I'm generally just an observer, so I will observe and watch, I guess, for a while. Mm -hmm. I need to take things in and digest stuff. And group dynamics is something that always comes into my awareness quite quickly, probably because I'm not very comfortable in large groups. I'm much more comfortable, well, if it was my way, just one-on-ones and there would be no other people <laughs> in my space, to be frank. But that, that's an ideal world and the world doesn't work like that always, uh, particularly when you are studying. So I was just curious to know, for someone who is a certified facilitator, you know, what makes a good facilitator and what makes good group dynamics? Gosh, that's a big question. Um, it, it's, it's interesting because whilst I have trained, uh, I've trained to do group facilitation, how I currently anyway apply it is, um, is facilitating, it would, I wouldn't say it's pure facilitation, so any facilitators, groups that are out there listening to this, um, I'm, I'm absolutely not claiming to do your role because I think that's something very specific. But, but what that training has allowed me to do though, as you've said, currently I apply it through the facilitation in group discussion mm. as part of the teaching and training and the workshops that I deliver. Um, but, but, and so I kind of want to make a distinction between, between that and how I use it and, and, and pure group facilitation, which is about taking a group through a particular process. So, so for me, I use facilitation skills in order to hold a group, such as a teaching cohort or any kind of workshop that I deliver, any group that, that, I, that I'm organizing and bring together, I facilitate a process of them being able to think about something altogether. And interestingly, we teach groups as part of our um, counseling diploma here at the center. And that's our current um, mo uh, module this term for our, for our second year students. So we're, we're right in the heart of thinking about group dynamics at the moment. But because we're psychodynamic practitioners, for us it's about recognising that whilst there is an entire layer of group dynamics going on consciously, that is layered upon a very deep layer, a much deeper layer that is an unconscious group process. And all the dynamics, all the transferences and projections and unconscious communications and triggers that are flying around in the group and between group members. So when I am facilitating any kind of activity or exercise with, with, with any of my groups, it's about me as the group tutor or the facilitator to be able to understand that that's also going on. And also as the group tutor, that I potentially being seen as the leader or in inverted commas in the transcripts the parent of the group, that I'm also a part of that. I'm an active participant in the group by the very nature of being in the room with them all and relating to them and so it's not just about me standing back and observing how the group work together the students themselves relate to one another for me it's also about well, actually what's my role in this and how does my role impact on other people and how do other people impact on me mm. because again I am absolutely rife being the course tutor the group leader 
I'm absolutely right to have, again have all those projections and transferences put on me as well. So I'm not immune to those dynamics myself. I'm, I'm an active living member of the group as well. Usually in group dynamics, one thing that I've noticed is there's always a dominated voice or leader and then everyone mm -hmm. follows. And I think that's probably quite poor group dynamics in my experience. Um, so what would you do if you were facilitating a group or maybe you've had experience of this already, that there are a number of people that are just not speaking or participating? What does that tell yeah. you? Mm. Well, I was going to say, again, it's two things. One is, what is potentially going on consciously in the group for that to happen? Mm. And is that because of how the group has been facilitated or the exercise or activity that they're being asked to do? Mm. So how are the group interacting consciously? But also I would look deeper and go, okay, what might be going unconsciously here? What might be going on in terms of unconscious communication, transferences or projections that means that, um, that a leader has emerged? The very fact that there is somebody dominating, what has happened in the group for that even to have happened? So, so again, we teach around then why a working group will end up potentially having a leader because why is that needed by the group? Why are other people handing over their power to another person in the group? And is that because other people have unconsciously given up their power to that person or has the other person taken it and, and is um, in a way staking their claim to be the leader? So, mm. so it's not just a matter of the fact that they're it's, it's, it's kind of different steps. It's the fact that there is a leader emerging in the first place. And second of all, how has that leader come about? Mm. And how are other people um, relating to them in response to that? Mm. Um, what I might do on a more conscious level then is if there is one person who is then speaking a lot, um, I'm always somebody that kind of will look around the group and then invite other people to share. Um, so, so I will always try to... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm somebody likes, that likes to be very inclusive in, in my yeah. teaching and learning. So I will absolutely make sure that, you know, I'll, I'll say things like, I want to make sure we have everybody's voice in the room. I want to make sure that people have the opportunity and to have shared what they want to say or to feedback to the groups. So um, it's always about, um, I, I perhaps take on the responsibility then to create that space for other people to speak, because otherwise that space won't necessarily be created by the leader that's the space that the leader actually takes up. So for me, it's almost a bit like creating the space for other people to speak. Mm, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I do think that that is what makes good facilitation is the inclusion mm. and, and giving everyone a space to speak and find out what's going on here and why that power has kind of been given to one person. Uh, I think facilitation is actually a real skill and I, I don't think anybody can do it. And in my time of working in corporate and also being in you know, my short time in counselling, I have seen, I would say very clearly, what makes a good facilitator and what doesn't. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much. That was really, really interesting. And I think my listeners will really enjoy that as well. It gives people something to think about. You're welcome. Yeah, so bereavement room is very much about life, death, grief and identity. Um, we are in series two now and I'm just curious to know what is your personal view on life and death, um, particularly maybe coming from the perspective of, of faith and culture. But yeah, what's your what's your personal view on it? 
Yes, absolutely. It sits within my faith of being a Muslim and a belief in an afterlife and that that there is life after death and leaving this world. And that's actually instrumental then from a faith and spiritual perspective, a belief perspective then that what we then do in this world has an impact on that because what will then happen or where will we, we end up in the afterlife and will that be heaven or hell? And so life and death are always going to be intimately connected because it feels like it's not just life and death, it's life, death, and then life again. And that second life as such is dependent upon this first one. And so for me, it's always in the background. It's always there. I'm kind of always mindful of that bigger picture. Um, I'm, 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 I'm always in a way thinking about rather than having blinkers on and thinking about what do I need to do today? Well, so I do think that I think there is something in always being able to kind of zoom out and go, what is it that I'm trying to do in this world? What is it that I'm trying to achieve in this life? And that kind of cliche question of on my deathbed, looking back, what do I want to be able to say about how I lived my life or what I achieved? And it then feeds directly into a sense of, for me anyway, intentions. There's always something for me which is about what are my intentions? What is it that I want to do? What is it that I'm, I'm, I'm intending to do? What is it that I'm trying to do in this world? And that for me actually is why I do the job I do. It absolutely is a foundational stone to my entire work, to, to all the different roles that I have under this portfolio it always goes back to that very simple point about trying to do good in the world and wanting to make a difference and wanting to have helped somebody. I think for me that is, you know, I'm feeling quite emotional just thinking about it because for me it's, um, as I said earlier, I don't think it's always been that conscious or me being that clear in my mind about why I wanted to become a counsellor. But because it naturally unfolded and it organically unfolded in such a way, it's because I think that ultimately, that idea of trying to be and do good in the world and to make a difference and to make things um, better for people and to have helped people along the way, that I think has always then been the driver behind it. Mm. That was really lovely. A lovely open reflection from you. I really, mm. I really like it. Um, on your personal view on life and death, which is very much related to your faith. Yes. Um, something that, I don't know if you listened to series one, but something that popped up a lot in terms of faith and culture, particularly for my Muslim guests and for myself being a Muslim host, um, we feel that faith and culture, there needs to be a bit of work in separating and clarifying this more, particularly for people that, are not from Muslim faith that uh, might see, you know, they might misunderstand Islam or stereotype us or put us into boxes and, you know, we are often ostracised in the media. So there is some work to be done to separate culture and religion. And I'm just going to specifically talk about uh, 
South Asians that are Muslim, mm-hmm. uh, not Muslims from other communities, because I don't know about mm-hmm. their experience and I've not had them on my show. Um, but particularly from Pakistanis, Indians and Bangladeshis that have appeared, uh, they have all, we've all talked about and tried to explore Muslim funerals. And as beautiful as a Muslim funeral is, the janaza, you know, the call to prayer, if you get to take part in the gushal, which is, you know, washing the body, prepping the body for burial, you know, it's a wonderful process to be involved in. But I think me personally, as a woman, I feel very far removed when it comes to the burial side of things Mm -hmm. because of what I would put down to not religion, although others may see it as it's because of religion, but I kind of interpret it to be because of patriarchy and just certain cultural traditions that I don't understand a bit why they're being practiced Mm. uh, and why women are sort of at a distance or not just tend to not be present sometimes at the burial. But then also since I've started podcasting, one thing that I've noticed is that I've had a lot of time to think since I've been podcasting in the terms of, you know, we do a lot of reflecting and processing. And as soon as the conversation has finished, we all go away and think about stuff that we said on the podcast and, a lot of stuff has come up for me personally that maybe my stuff is quite circumstantial because I have been present and not been present because of circumstances. Mm. But then also there is an aspect of patriarchy. So for example, when my nanny died when I was a kid, I was very much involved in her funeral. You know, I was right up there, you know, I saw her grave and, you know, I was like right in there. No one was hiding that from me. They wanted me to experience it. Um, But whereas when my mum died, although I was involved with most of it, I wasn't involved with the burial part. That's only circumstantial because she wasn't buried in the UK, she was buried in Bangladesh. And also I had responsibilities here, so I had to stay. And I, and I couldn't fly over, so some of that was circumstantial. But then with my brother and my dad, that was a completely different story. And it was quite patriarchal, like there are just no women going to be present here. So, I, you know, I've tried to contact a few Muslim associations to try and get a clarified answer. You know, I've read the Quran several times. And I can't, you know, I can't really see a line where it says women are not present here. I, I, all I can see is the line, do not grieve in a way that you're hurting yourself, mm-hmm. that you're hitting yourself or hitting someone else, but grieve. So I just wondered if you'd be able to shine a light on your perspective on it. Or maybe you have a personal experience. Well, well, first of all, I kind of again want to kind of stipulate I'm I'm, I'm no scholar, so I have zero um, kind of ruling or, or by any means of the imagination. You know, I've got I, I, you know, my views on it are not not speaking as a scholar in this or somebody mm. learned in this area. But for, for me, again it's about again my lived experience of it is one in which um yeah women don't go to the graveyard the cemetery itself um and that i know as far as i can remember for all the funerals i have been to that has been the case um but i but i obviously aren't a, i'm not able to say kind of what's the official islamic ruling on it but whether that has been brought out of culture for my family or born out of faith. Um, I couldn't say. I, I, I am kind of reflecting, yeah, absolutely, I'm reflecting on, and as, as you were saying that, 
which was again as a woman there's something about my involvement then in the funeral has been up to the point of literally when the body gets put onto the hearse and taken to the to the to the um to the graveyard but up until that we are at the mosque we are praying we are saying lots of duas mm. um we are congregating as a family and as a community mm. But the thing I'm kind of really sat with, interestingly, is having experienced some very close bereavements over the last few years. The thing that I've noticed, and again, this is through my own lived experience, personal experience, is the focus of that time together. And what really changed for me was when my own father passed away. And for me, by far the closest person who has passed away for me. Mm. And I remember at the time of the funeral and the lead up to it, for me it was starting to, in a way, see funerals for what they were really about Mm. and what the real meaning behind them was and what our role is actually in it. And it's interesting because between the time that, for me, looking back, it was about, and, and since then, when other family members have passed away since then, what I've noticed is, is that our role between somebody passing away in their funeral is not our role once they've been buried. And so for me, it was this distinction between my role at my own father's funeral, my role at funerals of, of other people since has been around has been about what is that person the person who's passed away what is their need at that time we don't have a need as the living it's not about what we need for our grief there and then it is about what does that person need from you because right there and then we can still help them we can still do our best for them we can still help them on that journey and that's our role and so for me it's about once I started to see that side of things or started to see my role as that it fitted in then with the next stage in which then the men come and take the coffin and then take it for the actual burial you know the physical burial Mm. at the graveyard which is about again what is the reason um, and what is the process what's happening to that person and to their soul in that journey and so for me now funerals are all about this is a person a loved one it's their soul and how can we help them mm-hmm. and and how do we allow that soul to go with peace mm-hmm. and with our duas and with our thoughts and our love and so for me it kind of sits very it complimentary you know it sits very very well for me but then because my role then um in doing that means that i continue to do that when the the coffin is then taken and we can continue to pray and continue to read quran Mm. it's after that when those people come back from the the graveyard the the janazah has been done at that point, you know, we can turn to our grief. 
but there is something about I think it's really special a really poignant time though that the only thing we're thinking about is what what is best for this person's soul Mm. and that is the only thing we need to think about in that moment Mm. so I've kind of heard like I what the explanation you've kind of given me your reflection is probably what I've heard from my sisters and my extended family and that I probably tried to tell myself as well that I do think there is a bit of a conflict particularly with our generation now or my generation and well the majority of my guests are a generation below me um that have come on and said yeah that's all well and good but I didn't get my opportunity to kind of see that final moment of saying goodbye so some of it yes is about us but actually it's more to do with the departing soul but I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't think that there's anything wrong with women being at the burial to kind of just have that moment of contemplation. Uh, but it seems that it is harmful if we are, is what is the perception that, it, that people have. Yeah, again, it's about how is it being positioned? I, 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 again, I, I wouldn't... As far as I'm as far as I'm aware, it's not about it being harmful. I mean, because clearly there's a big difference between us doing something that is then harmful to that person's soul or could jeopardise their soul, compared to um, being so distressed and so upset that then you are distracted from the purpose of this journey. Does that make sense? So I think it's about us recognising that there is a difference between the two. Mm. And, and as far as I can tell, yeah, it's not about, I wouldn't categorise under it being harmful, but... But, but, but some would, I, but some mm, would. They would say if yes. there's women present there, um, we are known to be hysterical, whereas men apparently aren't. But I'm sorry, I've been to loads of Muslim funerals and I've seen men wail and cry. So, so for me, that is, yeah. that is where I'm a little bit stuck on why women are not present. Yeah, but, but, but I suppose when, when I'm, again, it's interesting kind of how do we interpret the word harmful? What I'm thinking about is harmful to who? Because I think there is a big difference between saying, well, it's harmful to the person, the bereaved, that, that person's soul, that's, that's, mm. that's leaving this earth mm. and does, does it have a negative impact upon that person's soul or not and if it does then it's harmful because it's about that person mm. as opposed to it's harmful because it's distressing for other people to see you like that can you mm. see the difference so again, so again I think when it's positioned as oh it's harmful I would kind of want to know well harmful to who and harmful for what reason but, I, but equally on the flip side I can equally understand how again it's not about being harmful but I can easily see how if a group of women are going or any any woman goes to the actual burial the actual janaza and then is um, overtly distressed again it's about what's the impact what's the um and, 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 I, and I'm making no, and I'm making no distinction here that a woman gets more upset than a man, and that or, or a woman is weaker. Nothing like that at all. But I suppose what I'm thinking about again is, if a woman goes to the funeral, goes to the burial during the funeral, and does become distressed, is again that taken away from your role and or from other people's roles in why you're there? 
Mm. Um, so, so for me, it's not it's not about this this hard fast line about oh it's because because women are harmful. It's not it's not it's not it's not it's not about that. Not at all. I think it's about again we have to be really honest and self-aware about what is the impact of my behavior and what is the ripple effect of, 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 of the state that I am in on the other people there and on what they are trying to do as much as what you're trying to do. Mm. Uh, you know, I think it needs to be a little bit of kind of humility and, and, and a little bit of, you know, Whose ego are we thinking about in that moment? Mm. The, a need to go to the, the, the need. Again, it's about people's needs. Whose needs are we satisfying here? Mm. And I always go back to, when it comes to a janazah, the only person's soul that has a need and, and, and needs to be fulfilled in that moment is that person who has passed away. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I think women do have a very prominent role in the janaza. Some of them actually lead the janaza um, and, and they are very much integrated in that and lead on that. I think for me, the burial part is a bit of a great area because, you know, people have very poor mental health. And I think if you don't get an opportunity to say goodbye in the way that you want to because of community pressures or because of some cultural patriarchal crap, it can really have a detrimental impact on someone's mental health. Oh, uh, absolutely, no, uh, no doubt about it. Yes, I, I can appreciate that. Um, so it could be hard yeah. for, for, mm. for the bereaved person to not be able to participate in a way, actually. Uh, um, which is probably what I was trying to get at with the harmful thing. Ah, right, yes with the bereaved person because how do they then process that and digest that because they were not involved in that part and it feels like there's more of a growing need for women that want mm. to be present in the in the actual final stage whether that's to say goodbye or say a prayer or just to kind of close that door but and I, and I think there are different ways that we can do this by having more open conversations with our family about what our needs mm. are but um, sometimes that can be a difficult conversation to approach. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Well, yes, I was just going to say that, you know, again, it's not about a one size fits all. It's about if that, if that is going to be a concern with any particular family, then that absolutely needs to be spoken about because it's about how do we just navigate that time? Because also that time goes by so quickly as well. It does, yeah. Um, but actually it's about how do we create a process and navigate this this journey and how do we support the person who's passed away there so how do we do this that's best for them but also as as well as um it not being harmful to um the people that are left behind and i think that, that is such a tricky balance to hold because Again, it's about potentially about competing needs and, and who gets a say and who gets to be involved and who gets to do what. And, and I can appreciate that perhaps some families are not as open to having those conversations. Um, you know, I, I feel very blessed then that um, in my family and my own direct lived experience of it has been one in which I have felt fully supported and fully able then to participate and do what I've needed to do that's been about the person who has passed away and then and then think about my needs afterwards 
Um, but I appreciate not everybody might be afforded that space to even think about that. No, unfortunately not, which is what mm. I've heard on the podcast, but also my experience is a little bit circumstantial, a little bit patriarchal, a little bit here and there. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of, I would say South Asian women that are not present that would like to be. Yeah. And, and that's probably played a, a big part in poor mental health yeah. and how they feel seen within the community because they, you know, they've said, I'm not going to be hysterical. I'm, I'm going to do what's best for the person that has died. But I just want to be present for that last moment. And they've not yeah. been able to, which I, which I think is really sad, really, really mm -hmm. sad. And uh, trying to differentiate faith and culture and those conversations and the blurred lines has been a little bit difficult. I think on the podcast, I, um yeah, yeah. Mm. I, I was just gonna say yeah I can appreciate that also I have to kind of um and, and I suppose in a way another disclaimer that I need to put, put in as well is that I, I'm not directly from the South Asian community mm. and so you know again they're very mindful of actually yeah culture plays a huge part and so it does it's not just the culture in terms of ethnicity I think it's also about the culture your family have so I, I'm East African Asian and so we have a, our own particular culture that is not di directly then us coming from a South Asian community or country. And so we have our own unique culture and perhaps that absolutely has, has influenced then the family dynamics. It's influenced how open we are to think about and talk about death mm. and bereavements and funerals. And, That's it. And, and, and when we had a funeral, it's not just the men that sit there and talk about what are we going to do. It's the whole family. Mm. But the decisions are made between the men and the women. Mm. Yeah, there's an equality there mm. that, 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 that means then that everybody's needs get heard. Everybody's, um, um, you know, um, wishes to help even, you know, their offers of support, their offers to, 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 to do things. Um, as, as, as we all know, there's so much that needs to be thought about on the run-up to a funeral and obviously for the weeks afterwards. Mm. I'm just thinking in terms of getting food and making sure the family are fed and just making sure that things are there ready for the janazah. Mm. But it's actually just as you're talking and talking about a very patriarchal society, I'm sat here going, gosh, that's not been my experience at all. Um, and, and that's why at the beginning I was like, uh, this is just South Asian perspective, because I don't know what it's like for Muslims from other people outside of South Asia, Muslims outside of South Asia, I have no idea what, how funerals work, because it's probably a different setup, which is what I'm hearing from you. So. Yeah, yeah, the, the, well, there's something about, yeah, yes, we, 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 I mean, we, 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 still don't, we still don't have you know, that, that, that thing around, um, that, that, there's that specific point about the women won't go to the, to the actual um, graveyard on the day of the actual burial we will go the next day as a family or everyone will go the following day mm. but, but but there's something about but everything else in the run-up to, to the to the janazah and on the day of the janazah in the mosque and serving the fruit and doing all the duas and and just supporting the process mm. it's it's very much a everyone mucks in and everyone lends a hand and um mm. you know, people are going out and, 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 and going and buying what we need for, for it and everyone's involved in the day and, mm. and and so for me it's about it literally is a family affair it's you know us as all cousins and then all the aunts and uncles um will come together and 
and we will then think about okay what needs to be done and who's going to pay for what and who's going to organize what in terms of food and 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 drink you know water and who's gonna yeah who's gonna make the tea and who's you know it's not me like who's gonna serve cut up the fruit who's gonna serve the fruit yeah so so it's interesting that we're talking about this because i suppose that i'm going gosh perhaps i'm coming then from a different cultural experience that i again between yeah. the two of us we're going gosh we've had very different then cultural experiences of the same process exactly yeah <laughs> um but, 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 yeah absolutely but but as i said they like mine's come from one of actually being included all the way along and as i said the first time i experienced that was then for my father's own funeral and ever since then but you know unfortunately when we've had a family bereavement it's been that experience of as a family we are coming together and collectively making decisions about what's best mm, which is nice and i think that's probably the healthier way to do something that is quite distressing um yes um but also maybe a happy occasion for for some because you know uh, life doesn't end at death it does go yes. on yeah. um so that was a really good chat and kind of good to get your perspective on it and it is something that i've tried to drum to my listeners and everyone that's in this grief community that it, you know sometimes culture has a part to play so please do not mix up religion and culture because they are two very separate things mm, yes. and i think it's really important that we make that clear in in our conversation uh, which i think we've done um so this kind of now brings me to ask um you know sometimes i struggle with my muslim experience a bit of discrimination and i asked you we already talked about this earlier um where you kind of reflected on your own experiences um, this might sound like a very simple question, but do you think people are Islamophobic but don't realise it? Short and simple answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and, and I say that because actually unconsciously and consciously we are all prejudiced in one oh, we way are. or another. Oh, we are. <laughs> and, and so absolutely people can be islamophobic and, and not know it um equally they can be islamophobic and absolutely know it because so much of again how we are related to by the world and how much we relate to the world then goes on unconsciously we just in, we just internalize messages all the time about about who we are what my identity is where, where i belong in the world and equally then we treat people you know and in return we treat people based on and being driven by this unconscious kind of memory bank or this unconscious internal um you know frame of reference we call it or, or internal world our internalized view of the world through our lived experiences and so we then relate back to people very much from that unconscious layer within us um so we all have the capability to be prejudiced towards people and it may not even be that it is out and out you know like a verbal or overt again kind of racism or prejudice or, or, or slur but mm. it can be in through as we've mentioned earlier through microaggressions it can be through a not even by being ver verbally and overtly abusive actually by completely not seeing the other person by minimizing them by ignoring them it's mm. the lack of relationship that can also be 
prejudiced. So very often I think we talk about the proactive mm. um, examples of Islamophobia, mm. but I think there are many ingrained, subtle ways that Islamophobia is played out. And one way that I've experienced that then has been in those microaggressions where people might not quite give you the same value or weight or respect as your non-Muslim counterpart or the projection onto you of I might I might not be as educated as, as them or, or not as experienced as them or um, not as well spoken as them. So Islamophobia, just like any other form of, of prejudice, lands on this spectrum from one one end is the subtle microaggressions and the ignoring and the minimizing all the way through to the most horrendous, proactive, violent, abusive behaviours and languages and words. Yeah, I I feel very fortunate that I haven't experienced anything violent yet, mm. touch wood, um, because of my religion, but I have, I suppose, because of the colour of my skin. Mm. Um yeah, I thought it was an important question to ask, not just because you're Muslim, but um, I think it's something that we do need to cover off and talk about a little bit more because people tend to shy away or avoid this conversation, mm. uh, particularly non-Muslims. And I just wanted to put it out there for food for thought for, for some of our listeners um, about maybe questioning some of our prejudices and unconscious biases which we all have and we all yeah. carry but um, exactly. this is something that we do particularly need to spend more time on and, and reflect on yes um I, yeah just kind of just to kind of quickly add in there that i can imagine lots of people saying oh i'm not islamophobic and i'm not prejudiced against muslims Mm. It's, it, and yes, it's because perhaps that they won't be kind of verbally or, or, or in a behaviour act in that way. But it's it, for me, absolutely, it's, it's, it's because we're now starting to acknowledge the unconscious bias and the mm. microaggressions and some of the privilege that non-Muslims hold. Mm. That it's at that level, it's at that end of the spectrum that I think when you ask that question, can people be Islamophobic and not realise it? That's why I say yes, because I think people then do act from a place of privilege or unconscious bias and then literally because unconscious don't know that they're doing it oh but yeah are, but are being islamophobic absolutely yeah and it's a real shock to them as well because they're like yes. oh you know the penny kind of drops and yes. um that sometimes is frustrating for me um mm. but uh for as long as that penny does drop eventually uh, i guess that's the main thing Yes. Um, we are running out of time and I really, really enjoyed this conversation, but I just want to ask you just a couple of things really to reflect on. Um, what's the one thing you want communities to know about when it comes to death and grief? That it's a process and it takes time. Grief is not a finished end result or a final, you know, a, a finish line that you have to reach. Grief is a process that you go through. Mm. And, and I think it's really important that for anyone who is grieving is to offer themselves that time and that space and to be patient and to be self-compassionate and self-loving and self-caring to give themselves that opportunity to grieve fully. That was really lovely. Thank you, Myra.
It is a process. I couldn't agree more. I definitely feel it's a, it's a process and I think it will be a, a lifelong process for me. Yes. Um, which kind of uh, brings me to ask, what is your, you know, I don't want to put you in this Muslim box because you're not just Muslim. Uh, you know, you're a woman and you're an individual and there's probably so many amazing things about you that I don't even know. Um, kind of what is your hope for women navigating their paths, particularly Muslim women where you might want to impart some wisdom on? I think the biggest thing for me, and this is again through my experience, is as Muslim women, it's about find your goal, your ambition, find the lane you want to be following and, 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 and flowing in and slaying in. And as you do that, to ensure that who you have around you are people that are genuine in your success and your happiness and that they are champions and cheerleaders of you and for you and vice versa that you do that for them and I think that's really important and I say that that to find those genuine other people and those other people do not have to be other Muslim women mm. as long as those people are people that are 100% got your back mm. and are genuinely happy for you and you for them that's what matters because I think unfortunately what happens is that again we get homogenized and we get grouped together and we get given the sense of that somehow because we're all muslim somehow we're all meant to get along or that we all have each other's backs or that um everyone's genuinely happy for one another that's and not the case it's absolutely not the case <laughs> it's unnatural as well like 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 we're human beings we're, we're like imperfect you know we're we're imperfectly glorious it, it you know with all our flaws and all the mistakes and and we're just who we are and that's why i say then just find the people then find your tribe find the people that are genuine with you and are genuinely happy for your success and and for your achievements and want you to get there and are supporting you to get there and that you're able to do the same for them because otherwise what we end up doing is we end up choosing people as um eligible to be part of our tribe based on a tick box based on faith or gender or age or background or we've been on the same course together when really they don't tick any of the boxes in terms of their personality or character and and, and actually somebody's personality and character that's what makes them a good ally not because they share something um just because we have a shared aspect of identity if they happen to then be you know, for me, if they happen to then be a Muslim sister, I think, gosh, that's a cherry on top for me. That's an added bonus. Um, but it comes second to what's that person's character and their personality. And is that a genuine friendship there? Mm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You put that so well. Um, I think it's something often we think about and ponder on or try to navigate or struggle with you know uh, who is a, a true ally and mm. um I'm quite a proud Bangladeshi I would say but that doesn't mean that I will be truly aligned with every Bengali that I meet yeah um just mm. because we we share that same cultural background it just doesn't work like that even though I wish that it did it just doesn't yes. yeah and, and I think also you know uh, along with that as well I think there's something for me as well which is 
it reminds me, you know, I, I set up the Muslim Counseling Psychotherapist Network um, seven years ago now, back in 2013. And in line with that idea about finding your tribe, again, there's something about, I've created that network so that, yes, we're all Muslim and we come together, but even within the network and within meeting other, other members and just other people, other Muslim mental health practitioners, that's not your tribe. Your tribe then is you find them within that pool. So, mm. so again, I think there's something around my advice to, to Muslim women and actually specifically to Muslim mental health practitioners is that you also need to find your tribe of other, other mental health practitioners, you know, your professional network, your professional tribe. And my network and other groups, there's lots of different groups you can now join. Um, that's a doorway into that pool of people. But once you're in that pool to still be discerning, to know who you're actually going to connect with and work with and become your ally. I think it's really important that, that, that as Muslims, we, we are discerning of who we do bring into our inner circle. Mm. That was very powerful, Myra. Thank you very much. And I hope that my listeners will take some knowledge and wisdom perspective from that. Um, which now brings me to say, I, you mentioned your father a few times and um, I just wanted to ask, because obviously this episode is uh, why we do what we do and then the other format is speaking to people in detail about their bereavement experience. But because you have, um, you know, you reflected on your father a few times there, I just wanted to ask, would you like to share a memory of your father with my listeners? Um, is that something that would be helpful for you? Would you be open in doing that? Yeah, of course. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of one because actually there's so many. Um, the, the memories of my father, I have so many because actually he was my best mate because um, we got on so well and we have the same sense of humour and we, was, we used to sit and kind of watch the same TV shows and, and movies together. So I mean, that, that, that's kind of a real strong memory of mine. But the biggest memory um, I have is more just a feeling he gave me, which was around why I do what I do now as a practitioner. And that was, he told me that the one thing to be in life is to be kind. And to this day, I've never forgotten it. And it's now, it kind of reverberates for me in the work that I do and in trying to help people. And my work then, my biggest memory then actually is my work because that's the legacy he gave me. Like the work I do is a legacy to him because I'm only doing what I'm doing right now as a practitioner because of him, because he was by far my biggest support. He was the one that championed me all along the way to the point where, where I'm sat right now in my office, I'm sat in front of the desk that was his. Oh, I inherited, I inherited his desk. Oh. And that for me is around, it, it, it literally embodies then, that, you know, this was his desk, he had it for, 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 you know, for years at his work desk at home. And in giving me that, that was, that for me is the biggest memory because in this desk then is all those feelings around his belief in me to do this and his wisdom in, in everything he taught me. I am totally my father's daughter and I do what I do today because of him. That was so lovely, <laughs> very, very moving, very, very moving. Thank you so much for sharing that with me and my listeners. You're welcome. 
And before we go to the gratefulness challenge, how can we reach you on social media? If you want to just give uh, everyone a quick snapshot of how that works. Oh, really easy to find me on social media. So I'm on Twitter at Myra underscore Khan. I'm on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn as at Myra Khan Counseling. And um, the Muslim Counselor and Psychotherapist Network is also on social media at MCAPN underscore co underscore UK on Twitter. And it's the MCAPN Muslim Counselor Network on Instagram and on Facebook. Brilliant. Thank you very much. So we now go to the gratefulness challenge, everyone. Um, I'll just give you a, I don't know if you've listened to prior episodes, but the gratefulness challenge is where we say we are grateful for one thing in the here and now that is personal to you. Would you like to go first or should I? I, I, I would love to invite you to go first, please. All right. Yeah, sure. Um, I think in the here and now, you know, I've not pre-planned this. I really enjoy chatting with people to kind of get a perspective of people's different experiences, which is something that I feel very privileged to be able to do uh, in Bereavement Room on this podcast. It has opened many doors and many perspectives. It's brought so many people together. And for me, I think I'll always be truly grateful for that because I, I don't think that I would have gained the kind of doorway or the perspective or the knowledge or have met the people that I have met, whether it's face-to-face or virtually, had I not done this podcast, it has been massively powerful to just openly reflect and have a very raw and open conversation about often what is unspoken truths or taboo topics so yeah I in this moment really great to connect with you because you're someone that I probably admired from afar um at a distance so it's, it just feels really nice to have had the opportunity to have you present here today and also to everyone else that's walked through that door and that's what that's what I'm grateful for in the here and now beautiful really touching thank you for sharing that and then I'm sat here yes and I'm sat here reflecting on what I'm grateful for and again it feels like I could say 10 million things that I'm grateful for I I think for me I'm grateful for the opportunity to connect with you and the opportunity to connect with people and to be myself in those authentic connections Mm. um because I think that takes a level of courage and vulnerability. And I think it also takes a level of humility to, to feel that, gosh, I'm being blessed with that opportunity. Like I'm always humbled by the opportunity to connect with every single person that crosses my path. And every person I come across feels like a blessing. So yeah, I'm grateful an opportunity to connect with you. Well, that was the very brilliant Myra Khan. I feel like that conversation is slightly unfinished just because we ran out of time. I mean, we covered so much ground. Perhaps she'll come back into the room in future seasons and we can pick up where we left off. It was just really good to kind of get to know Myra a little bit better. I mean, we both equally got to know each other a little bit better because, you know, social media does only tell you so much and I think it's good to meet up with like-minded people and kind of share experiences which is what happened today. Another thing that I want to reflect on in that conversation is the part where I asked Myra do you think 
people are Islamophobic but don't realise it. So you all know the backstory behind Bereavement Room. The reason that I set it up was because of an experience that I had in the training room with a bereavement charity where I do believe that I was discriminated because I'm Muslim and because of my Muslim experience. Now, do you believe there was Islamophobia happening in the room? But it was hard to put it into words and articulate that experience because it wasn't violent and it wasn't overt, but it happened through microaggressions and unconscious bias that I could pick up. And it then led to Death Cafe, BAME, and now Bereavement Room podcast. So I kind of realised now, reflecting, having spoken to Myra about so many of these issues, that that will often happen. It will happen if you're in these white-dominated spaces. Um, you, there will be microaggressions, and people will be Islamophobic without even realise realising that they, you know, that they are and that they've done something wrong there. And unfortunately, it it was a painful experience for me, but it led to something really great and amazing, which is bereavement room. The fact that we are, you know, starting these conversations and talking openly and reflecting openly about what really matters. Well, I hope today's discussion was informative and insightful. If you were listening in Apple Podcasts, please leave us a star rating and review. It makes all the difference. Until next time, thank you so much for joining me today. Take good care of yourself.